Uh, if you just stepped in, uh, I want to welcome you to Redeemer again. Uh, we're going to continue to worship the Lord through our time in his word. We believe that we meet with the Lord in spirit and in truth, and we sing and we pray. And we also believe that he meets with us, that he gives assurance of pardon. He, he forgives us our sins. And even through this sacred moment, he is pleased to speak through a broken and frail person like myself. And so I invite you to, to continue to worship the Lord as we listen to his word read and then proclaimed. We're going to be in Mark uh, chapter 3, and we'll start at verse 20, and we'll finish up at the end of verse 30. And then Jesus went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that Jesus and his disciples could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he cast out demons. And he called them to him, and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we are in a difficult and hard and sobering passage, and I, your servant, ask for your help, help with insight, help with communication, help with uh, articulating the mysteries and complexities and beauties of the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you be with us and give us attentive ears, eyes, and hearts that we might be hearers, responders, and doers of your word. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. On Saturday, September 28, 2016, a bomb, uh, or several bombs, went off in the Chelsea neighborhood of Manhattan. And for two days, an alleged bomber was free. 31 people were injured, and the bomber was on the loose. He was caught a few days later after a shootout uh, with the police and was sentenced to multiple life sentences. Uh, but nonetheless, there was uh, panic all over the city. Well, ironically, uh, on that same day, uh, a man by the name of James O'Neill was sworn into office as the new police commissioner of New York City. So think about that irony, that your first day at work there's three bombs planted, there are three explosions, there's a man on the loose who has injured people. Your police force find other bombs that were yet to be exploded. And he comments right on the irony of that, like this is the first day on the job and that is what you walk into. He goes on to say that this was a pretty tough way to start my new position as police commissioner. It's sobering, it is heavy, right? There's a weightiness that comes upon him as he walks into this new calling. I don't know if you paid attention to the way that Mark is structured, but 
Last week, Brian preached on the calling of the 12, the calling of the 12 disciples to himself. And of Matthew and Luke and Mark, only Mark puts this passage we're reading immediately after they're called and commissioned to be his disciples. Think about that image. They've been called up on a mountain. Jesus calls them to be with him. He gives them authority and power over demons. And the first thing they walk into is this passage. Where you're going to have power over demons. But you will not have the power over hardened hearts to rescue them from eternal damnation. Think about the imagery. They have power and authority. And yet in our passage, we read of the sin that has no forgiveness, the sin that can be committed, that no matter what they hear, no matter what you say, it will never be bent towards faith in Jesus. What a way to start ministry, according to Mark. It's sobering. It's heavy. I know for many of us, you've probably not heard about the unpardonable sin, or maybe if you've heard people talk about it, maybe they put things in that category that, that biblically shouldn't be there. When I was growing up, I heard that if you commit suicide, you cannot ask for forgiveness, and therefore, you are condemned to hell, right? That I've also heard that if you uh, are homosexual and you struggle with same-sex attraction, that that sin is unpardonable and there is no grace. What about sins like adultery and murder? That, that what if you were to come up with a list of sins that if people found themselves caught up in, would you say that there is absolutely no grace and no mercy and no forgiveness? And yet, when you look at Scripture... It doesn't say any of that. They're murderers in the kingdom. They're adulterers in the kingdom. There are people who have struggled with same-sex attraction their entire life and have been given over to it and have fallen. And they've been in the kingdom. And so the question that we have to answer in this passage is, what is the unpardonable sin? And, and, and what is it according to Scripture and can a believer commit it? And how does the Lord want to sort of shepherd our hearts as we think about it today? That's what I want us to work through. Now, here's what you won't find. This is not, in other words, this passage is happening in a context. In other words, it's not as if Jesus takes a time out and then does this class on the unpardonable sin. It doesn't work like that. This talk about this sin happens in a context of ministry. And therefore, to understand the sin, you have to understand what's happening in the passage. And that's what I want us to do this morning. We're going to get to that sin that is committed, but we're not going to focus on it at the expense of everything else in the passage. The first thing we see in the passage is Jesus's fruitful ministry of power and compassion. You have to write this down if you take notes. 
You cannot talk about the unpardonable sin unless you're going to have a conversation about this fruitful ministry of power and compassion that is clearly on display in our text. Now, why would I say that Jesus's ministry is fruitful, that it's powerful and that it's compassionate? I want to trace it through this theme of the crowd. Now, Mark is doing something in his gospel. I want you to think about a, a little snowball that's at the top of a mountain that starts to roll down and pick up steam and pick up steam and it's picking up snow and it's picking up snow that this thing is growing and growing and growing and growing. And by the time that it gets at the bottom, it's like this avalanche that that is Mark's theology of the crowd. That if you remember earlier in, in, in uh, Mark's gospel, Jesus goes into the synagogue and he teaches and his teaching, it, 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 it captures the hearts of people. And then he leaves the synagogue and, and in the synagogue, he heals a man who's possessed by a demon. He leaves there and goes to Peter's house and heals Peter's mother and word gets out and the entire city flocks to Jesus. Well, then you go to the next next chapter. Jesus calls Levi, a tax collector, to be his follower. And then it says the crowd start to follow him. Well, when you get to Mark chapter three, it's not just a city. It's not just a region. It's not just a crowd. Notice what Mark says in Mark chapter three, verse seven and eight. And look in your Bibles. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And now it's a great crowd. They followed Jesus. And he says it again in verse eight. When the great crowd heard that all that he was doing, they came to him. And so this little small town of Capernaum was being overrun with swarms of people. Now, Mark doesn't just say that the size of the crowd is big. Mark also lets us in on who's in the crowd. And so look at what Mark says in Mark chapter 3, verse 7 and 8. It says, the crowd came from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. Here's a map, Nate. Will you put that up for me? All right. So that's Capernaum. You can't really see it, but all, all of the arrows are right there where Capernaum is. And if you were to take this list of places that you see right here in Mark chapter 3, verse 7 and 8 and put them on a map, you see people coming from Idumea at the bottom and Judea and Jerusalem and beyond the Jordan. The Jordan runs right from the Sea of Galilee into the Dead Sea. And from, from beyond the Jordan means that people from the other side of the Jordan are coming and people are coming from Galilee and from Tyre and from Sidon. You get the image that they're traveling hundreds of miles to a podunk town of Capernaum to meet this guy named Jesus that they are swarming this town to be near the Messiah. Thank you, Nate. So there's diversity in the crowd. You know the tension between people in Jerusalem and people from Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? That you have all of this tension that's happening, and yet it seems to me that thousands of people are coming from all across the region to this one town to be around this one Messiah. You get it? His ministry is fruitful. People are, he's being raised up and people are coming. And it's not just that. If you look at uh, the, also what happened in the context of that passage, you get this swarm of people. And you know what Jesus does? 
out of the great crowd, he chooses for himself 12. And he calls them up to be with him. And he gave them the authority to preach and teach. And he gave them power over the demons. Now, what does that feel like if you're in a crowd of 5,000 and Jesus only calls 12? And he calls them to be in my inner circle. And he commissions them to go preach on his behalf. And then he gives them power over the demons. Guess who has no power over demons? Guess who does not have his apostolic blessing at this moment to go and preach and teach? The thousands. You ever play pickup basketball and it's 20 people on the court and only 10 people can play? And you shoot and the first two people who make the shot, they're captains. And then those captains have to choose the people that they want on their team. And they're going to choose four more people which means there are going to be 10 other people who will not get chosen, which means that you have to go and sit on the bench and write your name on a list and say that I have next down. Isn't that offensive? What do you mean I'm not good enough, right? Because that's what's happening. You're choosing 10, but you're rejecting 10. Have you ever submitted to be in a sorority to put your name and to fill out your application only to not be chosen because someone doesn't know you or doesn't like you? Have you ever tried to date someone only for that love to not be reciprocal and for them to go on and date and marry someone else? You see, when someone chooses something, they're saying no to someone else. And when Jesus chooses the 12, he's telling every single person in the crowd, you're not going to be in my inner circle. Now, let this wash over you. What would you be tempted to do in the face of that? Well, man, I'm going to go start my own team. I don't need this sorority, right? Look at what happened in verse 20. Jesus went home and the crowd gathered again so that Jesus and his disciples could not even eat. They were low-key rejected by Jesus. And when Jesus came from the mountain, guess where the crowd stayed? Oh, that's all right. You can reject us. We're going to come into your house, right? Like, that's the image, right? They're not going away. And you know what Jesus does for this crowd? He would not even eat so that he could attend to them. You know what Jesus does for the crowd? When, and he healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever unclean spirits saw him, they fell down. In other words, Jesus' posture towards this crowd, whatever their motives might be, his posture is that of grace and tenderness and compassion. Come, you who are sick and be healed. Now, he wants something deeper than their physical healing, but he is not ashamed to give them what they're searching for. You cannot talk about the unpardonable sin 
without talking about the context in which it happens. It's happening in the context of Jesus' unstoppable power and his abundant compassion and this fruitfulness that he is this magnet and the world is going after him. It's clear, it's ample, it's powerful evidence that the kingdom of God is breaking in. It's obvious to a blind person with what is going on. He is at work. God is in our midst and he is bringing healing. It's the first thing you see. The second thing you see in this passage is Jesus's ministry of abundant grace. I'll be honest, when I read this passage, uh, I just hadn't been right all week. I'm just to be really honest with you. Just thinking through the sin that has no forgiveness and uh, letting the Lord kind of work on my own heart as it relates to this passage. And I'll just tell you, like, when I saw it coming a few weeks ago, and I was focusing kind of all my time on what is blasphemy of the Spirit and and. Why do you never have, I mean, my eyes locked in on verse 29, and you want to know what I missed? I missed verse 28. Have you ever read scripture, and and you're looking for something, and then the Holy Spirit opens this up, and then this becomes this beautiful thing? I've done it before. Like, if if you go back and read Genesis 1, 2, and 3, think about the prohibition in the garden. What did God tell Adam and Eve? Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For the day that you eat of that tree, you will surely die. So there is this scary prohibition. But did you also notice in Genesis that the prohibition is not the first thing God says to them? He actually gives them provision first. And what is the provision? He says, look, you may eat of every single tree in the garden except the one tree. Now, if you focus on Genesis and look at just what God is prohibiting, you're missing the provision in the garden. And the provision in the garden is you may take and eat of any single thing you want except the one. You get it? I think this passage works the same way. That if you think that the focus, the overarching focus in the passage is the unpardonable sin, then you know what you miss? You miss the abundant grace that Jesus speaks of. Well, where does he speak of it? Look at it in verse 28. He says, truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. So before you get to what is not pardonable, you have to hear All sins will be forgiven and even blasphemies that are uttered from our very mouths. Now, I think Mark has done something beautiful in this passage with his structure. Let me show you what I mean. If you have your Bibles, you're going to see a little phrase right above verse 22, and it's going to say blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. First thing, that is not in the original text, right? That's put there by scholars to kind of help us understand the flow of Scripture. If I were the person putting this together, I would not put that in verse 22. You know where I would put it? I would put it right after verse 19. You see, I think the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and the unpardonable sin 
that it doesn't start in verse 22. It starts right there with Jesus's family. Here's why. And, and, and track with me here. You look at verse 28, Jesus is going to say, truly, truly, I say to you, all sins and blasphemies, right? So blasphemy is a spoken word against God. All those will be forgiven. And then you get to verse 29. But there are some things that can be said about the spirit that are not forgiven. Well, when you look at the structure of Mark's gospel, did you notice that there are two groups of people saying something about Jesus? Who's the first group? It's his family. Look at verse 21. And when his family heard that Jesus would not even eat and there are these great crowds coming and he is giving grace and mercy to them, they went out to seize him for they were saying his family, his mother and his brothers were saying things about Jesus. Well, what were they saying? They were saying he is out of his mind. This boy had lost his, his mind like he is foolish Mama, go get your boy. Like, what is he on right now? Like, that's what's coming out of his brothers and sisters' mouths about Jesus. He's a lunatic. He is standing literally outside of himself. Now, we know that this is the second person of the Trinity. This is very God of very God. This is Jesus indwelled by the Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. This is the Lord of glory. This is the one whom holds all things in his hands. This is the one whose kingdom will have no end. This is the one who has been with the father before time and space forever. And their family, his family is saying about him, you are out of your mind. This is blasphemy against Jesus. He is not out of his mind. He is within his mind. And he's doing his father's will. Yet his family, they call him crazy. And notice what Jesus says. For all sins committed will be forgiven. And whatever blasphemies they utter. Think about that image. It's the image of if you and I were to take a notebook and were to start tomorrow morning writing down all of the things that we've done that we're ashamed of. And we could somehow see into the future all the things that we will do. And we would write and write and write until our hands could write no more. We would close the book and pick up the book the next day and continue writing the ways that we have transgressed the law of God. And what Jesus would say to you, if you are in me, that that list cannot get long enough, that I will forgive all of them. If you turn in faith and obedience to me, even the most scandalous thing that you have done, it can be forgiven. Now, here's the beauty. It's happening in the passage. His family, they're blaspheming against him. And you know what? They will be forgiven. He will pray from a cross, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. 
His brother James, who probably shared a room with him, who disbelieved would become a pillar in the church. We're talking about the Apostle Paul who would say, I mean, did you read our call to worship? The Apostle Paul would say of himself, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor and his insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief and the grace of the Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is, it deserved a full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul says, of whom I am the foremost. This is the Apostle Paul who calls himself a blasphemer, who was himself a persecutor and insolent opponent of Jesus. But the grace of God tracked him down and changed him and, and, and redeemed him. Jesus says, there is forgiveness. You make a list of all the evil, wicked, perverted things that you have done. And Jesus says, if you're mine, I will blot them out as far as the east is from the west. And the question is, do you believe that this morning? As you look at your own heart, your own life, things said, things done, things thought, things undone, do you believe the word of Mark 3, 28? All sins, even your blasphemies against Jesus, they can be forgiven if you're his. You cannot talk about the unpardonable sin and treat it as a doctrine unless you're going to have the same conversation about his amazing grace. You can't do it. It is theological arrogance to hold this out and to not deal with it in the context of what's happening in the passage. And that is good news for us this morning. Now, we got to get to the bad news because it's in the passage and it's real. You start to see the scribes informed and intentional sabotage of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And that's the third point. The scribes informed and intentional sabotage of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Notice what Jesus says, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. You got two people speaking, his family, they're uttering things about his mental state. The scribes are uttering things about who resides inside of him. Who are the scribes? These are like the heavyweights. These would be like your seminary professors. I mean, these would be like people who have studied ancient Near Eastern languages, who have, I mean, have, have memorized significant blocks of the Torah. These are people who are studied and learned. One scholar went on to say that if you were to think about the Pharisees and you were to think about the rabbis, you would put the scribes above them both. 
The Pharisees relied on the knowledge of the scribes. And only a special guild of rabbis could become scribes. So these are not lightweight people. These are informed, biblically literate people who know the word and know the promises of God. Now notice what Mark says. Mark says, and the scribes came up from, no, they came, let me get it right. It actually says they came down from Jerusalem. Now, why would he say that they come down? Show that, show that map again, Nate. So Jerusalem is right at the bottom, right? You see right we're on top of Judea. And notice Capernaum is up north. So why would Mark say that the scribes came down? Technically, they went up. Like geographically, they went up from Jerusalem to Capernaum. All right, thank you, Nate. Now, why? Well, it's twofold. One reason is because Jerusalem is about 2,000 feet higher than Capernaum. So Capernaum is, is a, a lower elevation. And so in one sense, they are coming down to get there. But it's also the place of theological power. That's where all the rules are established. That's where all the learned people live. And so it's also a metaphor for these high-minded, knowledgeable people coming out of their academic and religious posts to come down to Podunk Capernaum to investigate this makeshift Messiah doing this stuff. You get it? And when they arrive, what do they say when they see what they see? When they see the crowds from Idumea and Jerusalem, when they see the crowds from beyond the Jordan, and they see the crowds from Tyre and Sidon, what do they say when they see people being healed? What comes out of their mouths? They ascribe it to Satan. This is Satan. By the power of Beelzebub, which is another word for Satan, by the prince of demons, he is casting out demons. In other words, they're coming and they're seeing the breaking in of the kingdom. And you have the crowds there who are impressionable. And what you have them doing in the passage is audibly and publicly humiliating or attempting to humiliate and undermine the authority of Jesus so as to sway the crowd to not believe in Jesus. You trust us and you follow us. That's what's happening in the passage. And what does Jesus say? He says, look, that is illogical. It makes no sense. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, it will not stand. And he goes on to say in verse 27, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. You know what Jesus is saying? I'm here to pull a kick dough, right? We're going to knock the dough down, and I'm coming in to tie Satan up, and I'm robbing him. I'm taking every single thing he has 
He does not own, he does not own it. It's mine. It's my possession. Those are my people. This is my earth, and I rule it, and therefore I am going to tie him up and defeat him and rob him. It's a violent image, and yet Jesus is saying, I'm going to pull a kick, though, right? I'm taking what's mine. Is that not what we just sang as we think about Advent? Did we not just say, oh, come thou rod of Jesse free, thine own from Satan's tyranny, from depths of hell thy people save and give them victory over the grave. We sing that song every year in Advent because we believe that Jesus is the rod of Jesse. He is the promised Messiah who's come to rescue his people from the tyranny of the evil one. And Jesus says, that is what is happening in the passage. And they will not bow the knee to Jesus. You know why? Because earlier in Mark, remember when Jesus went into the synagogue to preach? What did the people say? He preaches as one who has authority and not as the scribes. You catch that? The first thing the people say about Jesus, you preach with power, homeboy, and not like the scribes. And so here you see the scribes when the whole crowd from Jerusalem, Judea, Idumea, everyone is going after Jesus. You know whose ministry they are leaving? They're leaving the scribes. There is a new king in charge, and he does not sit in an academic post in Jerusalem. He is right around here in Capernaum showcasing his glory. And the scribes, they hate it. And so they speak. They speak these blasphemies that Jesus is indwelled by Satan. Now, here's the thing. Blasphemy of the spirit before it is a vocal sin. Out of the heart does the mouth speak. You see, behind what they're saying, their hearts are hardened. And now that their hearts are hardened and boiling and fueled with pride, they will say whatever they can to not lose religious clout. You get it? Before it's a sin of the mouth, it's a sin of the heart. And so what then is blasphemy of the spirit? It is a hardness of heart given over to pride, though it has witnessed the power of the spirit in the person of Christ to save and rescue and reconcile men and women to himself. And yet this responding with disdain, anger, anger and rage that leads to publicly blaspheming the identity and power of Jesus it is a vocal, active, persuasive attempt to lure people after you and to turn them away from Christ. That's how we need to understand blasphemy of the spirit in the context of this passage. That's why David Garland says rejecting Jesus out of ignorance is one thing, but attacking the power by which he works is something far more serious. If one is weak in the faith, one can be encouraged. If one is ignorant, one can then be informed. If one is willfully blind and deaf 
and rejects help, what then can be done? One has cut himself off from what might lead to repentance. The sworn enemies of Jesus have shut their eyes to truth. It is not a single action, but a continual state of spurning the Spirit's work. You don't just wake up one day and blaspheme the Spirit. This is a hardening and a hardening and a hardening and a hardening and a hardening. Until that spiritual heart of yours that was like wet cement, it dries and you're given over to your sins. Haven't we seen this with Pharaoh? Does he not see a clear evidence of God's grace? Does he not see God's mighty hand and outstretched arm? Does he not lose a firstborn son, but in his hardness of heart, he actually frees Israel only to try to go and track them down and then to be himself destroyed in the sea? Does that not look illogical and irrational? You have seen the goodness and the power of God bow the knee, repent, and yet he hardens his heart. And so God gives him over. This is what you want. This is what you'll get. What a sobering way to start ministry if you're one of these 12. This is what you hear. This is the first object lesson you get. What about us in this room? Where's the warning in the passage? First, if you're a non-believer and you're here this morning, I implore you, bow the knee. Turn from your sins. Embrace Jesus as freely offered to you in the gospel. He says all of your sins and all of your blasphemies, they can be forgiven. He says, turn to me today while it is still today. You see, there is a hardening of the heart, which is real. And I felt it when I was in college. And I know what it's like to want to pray and you can't. And I know what it's like to throw parties inside of a building with your fraternity and you stay in there to 4 a.m and you take all the crosses off the wall because Sunday morning a church is gonna worship in that same building, they're renting space. And I know what it's like to have a heart that gets so hardened and calcified to the things of the Lord. And if you're on that journey, I'd admonish you, bow the knee, turn while it is today. Repent before you are given over to your sins. The second thing is if you're here this morning and you're a skeptic, and I know what it's like to wrestle with doubt, what you see them doing in this passage is airing their theology out public 
in order to sway impressionable people. We live in a culture where we think it's okay. Let me just speak what's on my mind. And Jesus is saying, look, you can wrestle, wrestle with your faith, but be careful your words and your skepticism. You might just be eroding the faith of impressionable people. And so, yes, Jesus welcomes your doubts, but Find someone to come alongside you to walk with you in them versus slandering his name in public. You don't want to do that and you shouldn't do that. Third, I know that we're an informed congregation. We know theology. And I just say that profession of faith and knowing facts about Jesus is not the same thing as knowing Jesus. It wasn't just Pharaoh who suffered that giving over, that if you remember what the author of Hebrews writes, and he's writing this to the church, he says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion where your, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. They always go astray in their heart they have not known my ways. I swore in my wrath that they shall not enter my rest. And he says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from a living God. He's saying they saw me. They heard the law. They saw, they saw, they saw, they saw. And they would not believe. Where's the good news of the passage? It's our fourth point and final point. That Jesus's ministry is to save and to keep his people. In one sense, every true believer, we're protected from this. Hear me say that loud and clear. If you are a born again believer, you're secure. You don't have to worry about your heart ever getting this hard or you will publicly blaspheme the word of the spirit, the work of the spirit. This is at the heart of Christianity that Paul would say that I was a blasphemer. I used to act in ignorance and unbelief, but I received mercy and the grace of the Lord overflowed for me and it produced faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. When Paul met the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit overwhelmed him and lavished him and changed him and took him from being a persecutor of the church to being one who was persecuted for the sake of the gospel. The same Holy Spirit who protected Jesus in the womb of the Virgin Mary, who descended upon Jesus when he was baptized by John the Baptist, who empowered and fueled Jesus's miracles, who guarded Jesus and kept him from sin, who fueled his obedience, who drove him to a cross, who allowed him to bear the brunt of God's wrath on our behalf is the same spirit who resurrected Jesus from the grave. And when Jesus was ascended onto high, it's the same spirit that is poured out in the heart 
hearts of God's people. And so now the spirit of the living God, it dwells inside of God's people. And guess what? This spirit inside of you and me will never do. It will never, ever, ever blaspheme the spirit of the one who saved us because it's one and the same. In that sense, we're protected believers. Scriptures will say we might grieve the spirit. Ephesians, we might get out of step with the spirit. Galatians, but it never says a believer will blaspheme the spirit. Not one single time. The spirit that is inside of you through your union with Christ is a spirit that saves. And Paul says he seals you until the day of Christ Jesus. You are sealed. The threat of this passage is not aimed towards you. And if you are grieved over thinking you've committed the sin, here's what R.C. Sproul says. While it might be theoretically possible for Christians to commit the unforgivable sin, the Lord of glory who has saved us and sealed us in the Holy Spirit will never let us commit it. I do not believe that any true Christian in the history of the church has blasphemed the spirit. As for those who are not sure they are saved and are worried they may have committed the unpardonable sin, I would say that worrying about it is one of the clearest evidences that they have not committed this sin. For those who commit it are so hardened in their hearts that they do not care to commit it, that they've committed it. Thanks be to God that the sin that is unpardonable is not a sin he allows his true people to commit. And that fuels our gratitude and our worship. Let's pray. Father, we bless you and love you, and we thank you for your saving and keeping grace. Would you fuel our obedience? Would you um, come alongside of us by your Spirit and enable us to live in step with the Spirit? Father, we lift up those to you who do not know you. Might today be a day of their salvation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.